This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello there. How are you today? Good to have you along. Just before the news headlines at half past 12 today, a new report says the resources industry is really going to have to act right now to have any chance of meeting Australia's 2030 sustainability targets. Also today, a little later in the hour, you're going to head off to Mansfield in Victoria where a wheelchair-bound working dog bringing in a mob of sheep has become an international sensation on social media. We got these um, wheelchair, like we didn't even know there was dog wheelchairs and, and we went all the way there and fitted her out and next minute she was flying around the farm again. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Do stick around for that. Uh, just before heading off to the Mouche sheep market today, just before the news at one, six past 12 here on the Country Hour. And the Australian Livestock Exporters Council says it is concerned by the footage aired on ABC TV's 7.30 last night, allegedly showing Australian sheep being sold, handled and slaughtered in violation of Australian regulations. The footage was captured in May and June this year by Animals Australia lawyer Shathar Hamad during an undercover investigation in the Middle East. The Federal Department of Agriculture, the industry regulator, began an investigation into the allegations Australian sheep were being sold outside of approved supply chains back in June, and that investigation is still underway today. Mark Harvey Sutton is the CEO of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council. Mark, what do you make of the footage you saw on 7.30 last night? Well, good to be with you, Belinda. Uh, look, the, the report last night certainly did show uh, concerning uh, instances of poor animal welfare, but I do have to emphasise that uh, we do have a very mature and strong regulatory process in place, uh, that being the SCAS system. And we do, there are processes in train at the moment that are looking into the incident, and we have to let that run its course. Uh, we have to let due process happen here. There's so much on the line right now for the future of the live sheep trade out of Australia to the Middle East. And why is this still happening? Especially in light of, you know, the precarious situation that the industry is in at the moment. Why does this continue? The minister himself uh, acknowledged last night that uh, the SCAS system is a very important system that underpins our market access for all livestock. No system is perfect, particularly given the unique uh, system that SCAS is, where it seeks to uh, assign responsibility to Australian exporters for issues that occur in market. So while it is certainly disappointing that issues have arisen, it has to be seen for what it is, Belinda. The, the department themselves and the minister have acknowledged that this is a separate issue to the phase-out, uh, and that's how we have to look at it. But is this really, I mean, footage like this, allegedly showing these sort of breaches, and we're talking about things like, you know, sheep with their legs bound together, being dragged by the leg or the head and being slaughtered in unapproved locations. I mean, isn't that the final nail in the coffin of this industry, the live sheep trade? I disagree. Uh, certainly what we saw uh, was very disappointing. It's, it's not good enough. 
if I was a producer in Western Australia at the moment, I would be very concerned about what I saw. But we have to remember why we do this trade in the first place. We do provide food security to millions of people around the world. We do have a positive animal welfare contribution to make. Uh, we certainly look to set standards in markets that we send livestock to. It, it, I, I'm very disappointed that this has risen, Melinda. I need to say that, um, and I can't emphasise that enough. But no, I don't. I don't agree that this is the final nail in the coffin for the industry. And the reason that we need the trade to continue is its importance to producers, sheep producers, but also its importance to influencing animal welfare outcomes globally. Why is it again footage from Animals Australia that is highlighting these alleged breaches, you know, sheep going outside of the SCAS system? Why, why is it that they're bringing those allegations to light, Belinda? Yeah, and why isn't it industry who are revealing well, and noticing that these sheep are going outside the system? It, it absolutely should be industry that's noticing this, Belinda. I, I acknowledge that. But I must emphasise that when these allegations were brought to light, the industry did respond. We, people were in market immediately, seeing what was happening, reconciling records, all those sort of things. I am disappointed that Animals Australia last night admitted that they didn't pass on some footage immediately to the department. Uh, and I go back to my point that uh, a robust and mature regulatory system you need to work with it. At the end of the day, we should all be in the game of improving animal welfare. If you're not working with the system that can enable that, I, I think you're actually letting everyone down because this should be brought to light. Uh, it should be addressed. Uh, and I don't think sitting on footage is an appropriate way to do that. And why do you think Animals Australia does that? Well, they argue that they felt frustrated by the department's inaction. But again... A mature system, there are processes that have to go through. Just because a process may not be moving in a direction that you perceive or think that it should head in does not mean that it's not happening. Uh, and I can assure you the department's doing its job here and we are very supportive of what they're doing in terms of looking into this uh, and conducting a very thorough uh, and rigorous investigation into this issue. And at the end of that investigation, which is being conducted by the Department of Agriculture, if the allegations are, are proven, what should be the consequences then for the specific exporter associated with that breach? I can't predispose uh, what those outcomes should be, Belinda, uh, because I think that would actually prejudice the due process that's going on here. And I'm not meaning to say that to cop out. But I think it's fair to say that we would uh, completely accept what the outcome of that investigation is. And if necessary, corrective measures or next steps will be put in place uh, and the industry will accept that. Would a ban on the exporter be appropriate? I can't speculate on that, Belinda. Uh, I, I, I appreciate what you're saying and I acknowledge that there is a huge level of concern about this, but I, I simply can't speculate on that. I apologise. Mark, good to have you on the show. Thank you. No, my pleasure. Thank you. Mark Harvey Sutton, he is the CEO of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council. 12 past 12. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. 
Electricity transmission here in Western Australia is set to get a big injection of funds. This morning, the federal government announced it will contribute up to $3 billion for new transmission lines and upgrades. And that money is going to be made available via concessional loans from the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. The deal has the catchy name of Rewiring the Nation. Peter Kerr is Managing Director of Energy Consultancy Group ATA and used to work for Western Power and the International Money Fund. He's been following all of this very closely for some time now and wasn't surprised by this morning's announcement. It's been brewing uh, in the background or in the works for some time. The government had announced a rewiring the nation uh, fund and so each state will get a share of that. So WA was eventually to get some of these concessional loans. So not a surprise, but um, a welcome announcement. How much electricity transmission infrastructure can $3 billion actually buy? It can buy a lot. It can buy a lot of um, equipment uh, as well, which is important. The transformers, for example, that uh, transform the electricity into higher voltages. But maybe to put it into common um, language people can understand, if you are driving along uh, the highways in the Midwest and you see one of those very big steel structures, one of those lines running from, say, Perth to Eniaba might cost anywhere between $500 million and $1 billion. So that gives you an idea that you know you might be able to get a good three or four of those. So there's a, a significant start, I guess. A significant start, given that it is also a very large state. Where do you think this money and how will this money be used? Yeah, so it's early days. The announcement's just been made. But um, the important thing is that the state government recently uh, released a Swiss demand assessment, or the Swister as it was known, and that identified some priority projects. So some of those are around Geraldton. Uh, for your listeners, Okagee, the most famous of those, and also... Um, separate to that assessment, there are some key areas in the Pilbara around the mining uh, areas where miners are trying to get to net zero or decarbonise their operations. It seems, cl- you know, as clear as, as it can be from this announcement that the money will be flowing to those p- proponents that are proposing those priority projects. And that's a lot of P's. <laughs> Private-public partnerships. Are you yeah. anticipating that this money won't benefit the Swiss? Oh, look, at the at the margin, it will benefit the Swiss, probably. There'll be some, you know, sort of positive benefits that flow from sort of complementary investment, if you like. But I f- think that at the heart of this announcement is an intent to try and help the private players unlock these very big projects, like, you know, the hydrogen exports, um, the, sort of the mines of the future, just to give them a kind of a bit of a, a a leg up, if you like, to make sure that they can just get the business cases across the line. Yeah, as you mentioned, there is a huge amount of interest in green energy generation at the moment and uh, lots of hydrogen, renewable hydrogen projects. Is government assistance for the transmission aspect of those projects, is that a key to getting them over the line and seeing those industries develop in Western Australia? Yeah, I think especially where the project will be a common use infrastructure, like a port. So Okiji will have, at the moment, five components, but that could be, if it gets up, there could be many more. And so the, the challenge is um, 
who pays for their share? How do you how do you allocate the share of the cost of those transmission lines that are so essential to getting the power from the source of the power to the actual use case, the, the port, the demand? And so it's very tricky to unravel uh, and unpick that because someone doesn't want to pay for the whole lot um, up front um, when it knows other people are going to come along behind. So often government investment is the key or support is the key to unlock uh, some of this. In terms of common user infrastructure, can you see a model a bit like the Bunbury to Dampier pipeline where the, the line itself would be owned by private industry? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, uh, especially in the Pilbara, um, where it already exists largely, most of the miners have their own transmission network. Sometimes that's inefficient. Sometimes it's efficient. I guess the challenge is trying to bring all those groups together. There's been some good steps in that regard. The miners recently signed up to an idea championed by Energy Minister Bill Johnson to try and work together for the first time on on developing these common user transmission lines. So there's definitely been some movement, some thawing, if you like, of previously difficult relationships between miners. They haven't tended to want to share transmission lines in the past, but a big pot of money can sometimes help. Managing Director of ATA Consulting Group, Peter Kerr, with Lucinda Jose. Well, Shadow Minister for Energy Steve Thomas has welcomed this morning's announcement the Commonwealth will contribute up to $3 billion for transmission infrastructure, but says it confirms what he's been saying for six months, that the transition plan has not been properly funded. Steve Thomas says for the state government's plan to be delivered, we're going to need a much greater investment in generation and storage. And he says an extra $3 billion for transmission will just be the start of the issues. And the Cook Labor government is still on track to have the lights go out if we get a summer heat wave this season. He says we'll face an energy crisis by 2027 under the current plan. 19 past 12. We'll check in with news headlines in a few moments or so. Just before that, though, the resources industry needs to act right now to have any chance of meeting Australia's 2030 sustainability targets. That's the main funding finding in a recent report that's been done by a business services firm Deloitte. The company's mining and metals sector leader, Nikki Ivory, says it will take a Herculean effort from industry to meet emissions reduction targets. So the world is aiming to decarbonise over the next few decades. And you hear the term net zero by 2050 bandied around a lot. So that is broadly speaking where most countries are pulling towards, Australia included, but with an interim target to 2030 of a 43% reduction in our baseline carbon emissions. It sounds like a lot as a layperson, is it? It is. It's not an easy task. It's going to take a Herculean effort to achieve that. And it's not that far away either. I mean, is this, is this an obtainable target, do you think? Seven years. So we focus quite heavily on that. Seven years, seven ways to act. And we talk a bit about what we think companies need to be doing now to make it achievable. So what do companies need to do? Where do you start? So there are a number of things, and it, it is a holistic, um, you can't just, it's not just about decarbonising your energy sources. It's, it's about bringing 
all forms of sustainability into what you do. So we talk about integrating circular economy principles. So we're an interconnected ecosystem and we really need to work together. You can't do this on your own. We need to really genuinely value the natural systems around us. So the water, the air, everything that we, we operate out in generally remote areas and the economic value of nature is really critical. And, and once we understand its value, we'll treat it a lot better. We need to invest in sustainable water management. Water is critical to health on the planet, but also to mining operations. We need to focus on climate adaptation and the next wave of decarbonisation pro- projects. So we actually need to be doing this, not just talking about it. And then we need to partner, not just transact. Partner you know, I talked a bit about the ecosystem. We can't do this on our own. We need to do it in combination with others. And we need to communicate really well. So obviously there are mandatory reporting requirements that are coming in. It's not just about that. It's about genuinely, transparently communicating what you're doing, what you can do, what you can't do when you'll do it. And then last but not least, we need to invest in people, in our future leaders. The young generation, they're the ones who are most concerned about what the future of the planet holds for them. We need to be embracing them, listening to them, bringing them on board, taking their ideas, innovating. Do you think enough companies are acting fast enough to meet this target by 2030? I would say there's probably a lot more that should be done. I think it's going to be a challenge at the pace at which companies are acting now. Hmm. Because I suppose we, we hear so much that it's, that big end of town it's the miners it's the farmers that are you know creating these greenhouse gases and they're the ones who need to act so is there i suppose enough out there to demonstrate that there's at least those first steps being taken well i guess what one of the first steps that a lot of companies have taken is to talk about what they're going to do so to set a strategy and we've seen a lot of that so there's a lot of strategies out there but i think it's now the tactics and then acting on those tactics. And then, you know, it's a constant review process because a lot of the technologies that are going to be adopted don't exist yet. So you've gone constantly innovating and reviewing, and then you've got to transform your business. And I think the other thing, so that's the sort of acronym we have in our report, start, just start. Strategy, tactics, act, review, transform. Seven years down the track, Nikki, if you get out your crystal ball, will we be there? I think we will achieve some of what we are setting out to achieve. It is an interim step. I think it'll be a little bit of a wake-up call that if we want to get to the the far, you know, the longer-term target, the net zero by 2050, we're going to have to do a lot more. So I suspect we probably won't fully get there, but hopefully we'll have made great strides. Deloitte's mining and metals sector leader, Nikki Ivory, speaking to Tara DeLangraft about the findings in their recently released report on what the resources sector needs to do to meet sustainability targets. 24 past 12. Well, you just heard the term decarbonising energy, and that involves renewable energy utilising wind and sunshine. Hydrogen could play a key role in the storage and transportation of energy created in all sorts of projects proposed for Western Australia. Professor Craig Buckley leads the Hydrogen Storage Research Group at Curtin University and he hopes their research will prove valuable in the near future. The reason that we are talking about it now is because the cost of renewable energy has come down so far 
in the in the past couple of decades. I mean, solar has dropped drastically in price um, because you must remember to produce hydrogen using electricity basically costs you more energy than what you get out of the hydrogen that you produce. And so in the past it hasn't been worth doing. But because the cost of um, renewable energy has come down so much and now there's such a thing as excess energy as well, which is not being used, like our solar rooftop, a lot of that only gets used, part, parts of it gets used and parts of it just is wasted. So if you can actually use that as well as the cost being so low now compared to what it used to be, it's now there's, there's now places where hydrogen can be used, there's niches where areas that it can be used in and that's why we are now talking about hydrogen. Now there are some challenges and you've been researching this for a long time. The challenge, as well as getting it cheap enough and uh, having cheap enough electricity to make it, the challenge is moving it around. Why is it difficult to move around? Oh, well, hydrogen is a very light molecule, so it goes through most uh, materials. It, it can be brittle materials as well. And so um, basically you need to store it, so that's, that's the hard part. So there's a number of ways you can do it as compressed gas, you can do it as a liquid, or you could do it in a solid-state form. So with compressed gas, basically, you see examples of that in transport. Uh, 700 bar pressure in a car, for instance, that's how they, they store it in the car, and that gives us enough 5 kilograms of hydrogen to run your car, pretty much the same distance as a fossil fuel car. For uh, liquid hydrogen, you have to go to very low temperatures to turn it into a liquid, so, that's, so it's difficult. And then that brings its density up. It's what, what they term the volumetric density becomes higher, and that's better than compressed gas. But then there's a solid-state hydride, which may even be higher again in volumetric density, up to double that of liquid hydrogen. And um, that's what we're working on at Curtin University, using a material called um, sodium borohydride. And that uh, basically can be... Um, uh, basically, it would be a powder, and we all know how to transport powders, and then um, you add water to it to produce the hydrogen at the other end. And so you get hydrogen from the water as well as hydrogen from the powder, and that makes it uh, almost 30% higher in volumetric density than ammonia. Wow. So this solid powder, um, what did you call it? Uh, Sodium borohydride. Sodium borohydride, so it will suck up the hydrogen molecules so that you can move them without having to keep them at high pressure or keep them very cold, and then you can extract them when you get to the other, other end, yes? That's so right. does it get used up? Does that powder get yes. used up? So what happens is when, when you add water to it and the hydrogen's released, a borate is formed, so that's a byproduct, and that byproduct we want to ship back to Australia using renew- and we use renewable energy in Australia to turn that back into the starting uh, product again, which is sodium borohydride, and that can be 100% recyclable. And how far away from that technology being a reality are we? We are a fair way away at the moment. Um, we're, we're doing experiments in our laboratory at Curtin University at the moment on it using an electrochemical method. And so that's where we lock the hydrogen up electrochemically and we don't have to use an electrolyzer to produce the hydrogen in the first place. So that's a, a really good way. So that technology could be a few years away yet, but we're, 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 we're making some progress in the laboratory at the moment. Head of Hydrogen Storage Research Group at Curtin University, Craig Buckley with Lucinda Jose. 28 past 12, earlier you heard from Nikki Ivory and she's from uh, Deloitte, um, the mining and metal sector with Deloitte. She was saying that it's going to take a Herculean effort 
for the resources sector to meet its emissions reduction targets by 2030. And uh, Peter agrees on that. He picks up just saying a Herculean effort, to say the least. It will put pressure in the form of greater cost of living on non-metropolitan citizens and lower income earners. Buzzwords, catchphrases and vaguely poetic blurb won't help those who won't be able to afford as much energy as they'll need. Maybe the spotlight should shine on India and China first, says Peter. And just right at the top of the hour today, the Australian Livestock Exporters Council's Mark Harvey Sutton was here just talking about his concern about the footage that was aired on ABC TV's 7.30 last night, allegedly showing Australian sheep being sold, handled and slaughtered in violation of Australian regulations. Fiona says in response to what Mark was saying that Animals Australia and sheep outside the system, Animals Australia will sadly do anything to sheep to destroy our industry. And this too, if the Labor Party uses cruelty to animals as the reason to ban live sheep and cattle exports, why do they promote recreational fishing where fish, animals, are hooked through the mouth, pulled against their will out of the water and left to die slowly by suffocation? Let me know your thoughts on the text 0448 922 604. Jonathan Hopper is in the studio with the news headlines. Good afternoon, Belinda. Federal politicians will be given their largest pay increase in a decade after the independent body which sets politician pay determined previous increases had been too conservative. Federal politicians will all receive a pay increase of 4% from next month, meaning the base pay of a parliamentarian will increase to almost $226,000. The federal court has ordered Bluescope to pay a $57.5 million penalty for attempting to fix prices for flat steel products supplied in Australia. Last year, the federal court found that Bluescope had attempted to induce eight steel distributors in Australia and an overseas manufacturer to enter agreements to fix and or raise the level of pricing for flat steel products. And the Trade Minister Don Farrell has predicted China will soon lift all remaining trade restrictions on Australian exports. Earlier this month, Beijing announced it would scrap tariffs on Australian barley with shipments of grain to China resuming this week. China still maintains that trade barriers on Australian wine and other products, including beef and lobsters. Thanks, Belinda. Jonathan, thank you for that. And that reminds me, the um, Agriculture Minister Murray Watt has been out at the Quinana Grain Terminal this morning and he was there, obviously federal cabinets in in Western Australia, but he was making a trip there because preparations are underway for the first shipment of barley heading off to China since those restrictions were lifted that Jonathan was just talking about. And good news there from Jonathan too that perhaps those other restrictions might be lifted and tariffs might be lifted soon too. So we'll keep an eye on that, of course. It is 28 to 1 here on the Country Hours. Still to come, it's off to Mouche for the results of the sheep market today. And as I mentioned earlier, you'll head off to Victoria, to a farm in Victoria, where there is this wheelchair-bound working dog that's um, brought in a mob of sheep. So it's been captured on video and has become this international sensation on social media. So we'll look into that a little bit more too. And also taking a look at the holidaymaker visa working conditions because a Carnarvon banana producer thinks the proposed changes to Australia's working holidaymaker visa could result in food shortages 
and even price rises. First, off to the Bureau of Meteorology to catch up with Caroline Crow. How's it looking across the Southwest Land Division, Caroline? Yeah, good afternoon, Belle. Uh, so at the moment, uh, there's a bit of cloud through southern parts of the Southwest Land Division at the moment, uh, with just the very odd light shower along the south coast, uh, sort of around that Albany and Esperance area there. Um, and then uh, clear through those northern parts, we've also got uh, warming temperatures as well. Um, we're going to see that continue into the next couple of days, coming into Wednesday and Thursday. So coming into uh, Wednesday, Thursday, it's really going to be generally clear and mostly sunny throughout the Southwest Land Division, with really no precipitation. Uh, warming temperatures. So uh, in northeastern parts, uh, we're looking at two to eight degrees above average uh, coming into Wednesday and even getting a little bit warmer than that through uh, northern parts, inland northern parts of the uh, central west district, so Mullawa area and Morawa. Uh, and then coming into Thursday, it's even going to increase a couple of degrees more, so 10 to 14 degrees above average through those northeastern parts there. The winds will also pick up as well. We'll gradually see them turn from the east to the northeastly coming into Thursday. So that warm air and that gusty air down a trough that's forming. Coming into Friday, the trough will move inland and we'll see a little bit of or the peak heat um, temperatures move east with the trough as we get a weak frontal system just move through the southwest. Most of the falls are going to be in that lower west and southwest uh, region, sort of uh, southwest of Perth to Albany, uh, getting one to five millimetres. Um, and then up to Geraldton to Bremer Bay will be less than a metre, uh, sorry, less than one millimetre. Um, and then sort of uh, not really reaching the uh, northeastern parts of the Southwest Land Division. And then coming into uh, the weekend, uh, the, behind uh, that cold front on Friday maintains a uh, westerly onshore airstream, which is going to have a couple of fronts come through. There's a bit of uncertainty on timing and strength of the cold fronts coming through Saturday, Sunday, and even into Monday. Um, but most of the rainfall will be confined uh, to that uh, Perth-Albany region. Uh, cumulative over the 72 hours to about Sunday night, I've kind of, I thought, um, put it all together, sort of might see up to 5 to 10 millimetres in the southwest and then grading to 2 millimetres as you get sort of further north up to Geraldton and uh, down around to Bremer Bay, sort of southwest of that line and then less than a millimetre anywhere northeast of that uh, if any rainfall at all, um, Bell. The other thing uh, is with the clear uh, conditions over the next couple of days, uh, minimums will uh, get quite low through inland uh, southern parts of the southwest land division um, sort of around the um, Lake Grace area and Salmon Gums uh, up to Norseman there, sort of one to two degrees. So we could see some isolated frost through that area coming into sort of tomorrow morning and that will gradually move east on uh, Thursday, sort of just inland of Esperance area. We'll have pretty cold temperatures coming into Thursday morning. But as that uh, clouds up a little bit into Friday, we'll see warming temperatures. And how's today and the rest of the week looking for northern and eastern parts, Caroline? Yeah, it's pretty much sunny, warm uh, over northern parts, Bell. Uh, temperatures are continuing to be above average, uh, dry conditions. We've got uh, the winds will pick up a little bit gradually coming into Thursday, Friday uh, through northern and eastern parts. Um, but otherwise, pretty clear and sunny, Bell, uh, for the outlook period. And then any warnings today? Currently no warnings at the moment. Great. We'll let you go. Thank you, Caroline. Cheers. It is 24 to 1 and in the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, a few places in WA's southwest received sort of between 
one and four millimetres of rain. And some locations in the southern coastal region got between one and two mils. But apart from that, no rain anywhere else across Western Australia. The Western Australian Government is distributing free information tags to nurseries as part of efforts to prevent an outbreak of Queensland fruit fly. The tags urge you to regularly check fruit trees and also offers advice for those who think they may have seen the invasive pest. WA is considered free of Queensland fruit fly, but a few weeks ago the pest was detected in a Perth suburb. State Agriculture Minister Jackie Jarvis says Deepert is doing everything it can to prevent the pest from spreading to WA's fruit-growing regions. Our fruit and vegetable industry is worth $1.5 billion a year to Western Australia. So obviously our fruit and vegetable industry is not only important for export, but it's really important for local food security. Qfly has been eradicated eight times in the Perth metro area over the last 40 years. But what we're doing is telling the Perth public that they need to help us along the way. And that includes things like, you know, if you've got fruit trees, checking your fruit trees regularly, not moving fruit from one property to another. So if you have a backyard fruit tree, um, by all means, eat the healthy fruit. Don't let the fruit rot on the ground. Um, And as I said, the fruit's safe to eat, but please don't take any homegrown fruit and veggies away from your property. How big of an issue is Qfly right now? at the moment for WA producers? So look, it's not impacting producers at the moment. There is a small um, incursion around the Perth metropolitan area around Bayswater, Bayswater Ascot area. So I think they found a handful of of fruit fly and some larvae. So it's not impacting producers. And obviously the aim is, is that we contain it and then eliminate it. Okay, so so in protecting trees bought at nurseries for sort of everyday people, that will help protect the uh, fruit and stone fruit tree industry, is that right? Yeah, exactly. So what happens in Western Australia, we are currently declared free of Qfly and that means we can actually export uh, fruit and veggies to some markets that other countries can't. So things like our strawberries, our grapes, our apples can go into markets into Thailand, Vietnam and Japan if it was considered that we had Qfly was endemic in Western Australia, we would not be able to export fruit and vegetables to some of those markets. So our colleagues on the East Coast cannot export fruit to certain markets because they have Qfly. So we have to prove that we are free of Qfly. There's a small outbreak in the Bayswater area and that's why we've got over 200 staff working to contain and test. So it's not only about containing the Qfly, but it's actually also about proving to our overseas markets that we're free of Qfly. Western Australia's Agriculture Minister Jackie Jarvis talking to Ali Honeybone about what Deepherd staff are doing to try and prevent the spread of Queensland fruit fly here in Western Australia. Fruit trees being for sale at nurseries will now have those tags attached and they say help protect Western Australia from Qfly and it has a QR code on it and it makes it easy to download the Pest Guide Reporter app. Uh, so check it out next time you're in the nursery. 22-1. A Carnarvon banana producer thinks proposed changes to Australia's working holidaymaker visa could result in food shortages and price rises. The current system for backpackers in Australia is those on the one-year working holiday visa can extend their time here 
if they do 88 days of work in a regional area, uh, typically on farms during harvest. But a review into Australia's migration system has suggested limiting that visa to just one year. Carnarvon's Sweeter Banana Cooperative heavily relies on the backpacker workforce. Business manager Doriana Mangili says if that proposal gets implemented, it would have a huge impact on towns like Carnarvon. I think most of horticulture in Carnarvon is fairly dependent on um, either the working holiday visa makers or the um, seasonal workers. Our work is primarily um, seasonal, it's harvest. So although, for example, something like bananas is packed all year round, we have much higher volumes in the summer than we do in the winter and we need extra labour at that time. And um, some other products, mangoes and other fruits and vegetables that are grown in Carnarvon have very short seasons. So there just isn't a surplus of Australians that are waiting around to work for six weeks on the mango season or, or um, you know, six months um, harvesting other products. So um, most Australians have uh, work all year round and um, are already gainfully employed. So yeah, we, we're very dependent on um, on both of those those workers um, on our farms. And what do you see would be the consequences if something like this was brought in? Oh, I think um, before we had the working holiday maker visa, farms were really struggling to get workers, and we saw during um, COVID when we didn't have new seasonal workers coming in that many many farms planted less and grew less because they could only harvest what they could harvest themselves Um, and we saw the price of food going up because when there's less volume around um, there's more more demand um, with less supply um, prices tend to rise so yeah so I think um, there will be wasted produce that can't be harvested Farmers will be really cautious about what they plant because they'll be unsure if they can get it off the ground and pack it. So I think it could result in um, food shortages, especially in regions that are highly dependent. And Carnarvon is one of those regions. We tend to have smaller farms and rely more on that um, working holiday maker seasonal labour. How much of your workforce would be made up of those on the working holiday visa? It's probably around 50% uh, at the moment. So, yeah, and it goes up, as I said, over summer. So, you know, our, our volumes can double between what we do in summer and winter. So for those summer months, um, we tend to get more of the seasonal workers or the, the working holiday maker visas because they come and work for those few months and then they go off travelling. Um, so, yes, yeah, so it might it's 50% now. It could be, you know, 70%, 80% by the time we get to peak volumes. And for things like um, <clears throat> short season products like mango season, which only goes for six weeks, you need those packers only for a few weeks at a time and, and that tends to be all those sort of working holiday maker visas that come and do that work. In terms of uh, this season, how were, or your last season, how were things in terms of workers there? We're okay at the moment. We've had um, a really good, consistent workforce and we're getting some, you know, new working holiday makers. People are, are sticking around and um, it's been good. We've had a lot of people knock on the door. Currently have enough staff because, as I said, it's, it's still winter and the fruit isn't growing as fast. But as we approach summer, we'll need more of those seasonal workers and it's good there are lots of backpackers around. And I guess the other thing is it brings those people to our region. So they come, they spend money in our regions, they work and live here and go to places like Coral Bay and get to know. So they're not just all stuck in the capital cities they're coming out to the country and seeing parts of Australia and and, you know enriching our communities as well as they're being enriched by their experiences here so there's a whole lot of benefits around that working holiday maker visa that 
have you know enriched our communities lots of lots of them have stayed on you know they some some have got married or whatever it's a it, you know there's it's been a, a really good thing for getting young people um into our regions so i think if if it gets taken away the impacts will be more than just sort of the financial and the food security Doriana Mangili is the business manager for Carnarvon's Sweeter Banana Cooperative. She was speaking to Rosemary Murphy. Quarter to one. The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. We'll head to Mushe for the results of the sheep market just before the news at one. And emotions were high at the Redmond Sawmill in Albany yesterday. And that's because it processed its last Jarrah log and the mill is now closed. The official ban on native logging here in WA comes into effect next year. But sawmill manager Adam Addison says they've had no choice but to close now because not enough logs were being supplied by the Forest Products Commission to keep their business afloat. He says it's sad because the way they operate in WA is sustainable. Uh, look, all of us, uh, I suppose, are uh, working out what we're going to do with our uh, future. Uh, there's some guys that are, uh, you know, a little older, and um, but there's also some young guys here who really don't know what they're going to do with themselves. I'm not even positive what I'm doing with myself yet, and it's uh, uh, it's been sort of hard to put a finish day on it, date on it. Uh, we have the last logs going through now. We've got a little bit more processing and site tidying up to do, but um, very, very difficult to put a... Uh, finish date on it and exactly what we're we, you know we're going to go and try and do because obviously I mean, it, there's a lot of skill that's walking out the door absolutely well, yeah. all the knowledge yep yep um, you wonder when people come to buy timber like this behind you or hardwoods where's it going to come from it's look it's, there's there is no two ways about it that it's going to come from um, uh, countries that don't have uh, industry best standards like we do. It, it, you know, there's. Uh, I've heard people talking about they're going into Papua New Guinea at the moment. There will be no regrowing done there. At least we have a sustainable practice in place, and we know that we're doing the right thing for a sustainable industry. Whereas those places are not going to. There, there's just nothing like that set in place. So, and equipment like this as well. I mean, this is a very modern mill, yep. relatively speaking, isn't it? It is what most definitely. Look, uh, Corey's obviously uh, trying to find a buyer for it. Um, if he doesn't, uh, was not able to find a buyer for it, uh, uh, a lot of it might even get up as scrap metal. What a waste. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, terrible. Terrible. And yourself, what do you think you might do? Uh, look, I'm not really sure at this stage. Uh, probably uh, continue to be involved in sales somewhere along the line, but, um, yeah, not really 100% sure. I travel down each week at the moment uh, to Albany from Perth, uh, so something hopefully up in Perth, a bit closer to home, but, um, yeah, it won't be in the timber industry. Adam Addison, he's the general manager for the Redmond Sawmill, and he was speaking to Mark Bennett. At peak production, the company employed about 22 people, By the end of this week, about 12 workers will have lost their jobs, including Peter White, who spent the last four years working at the mill in Albany. I'm 58. Um, It's probably going to be a little bit hard for me to get another job that is really well paid. Um, You know, I'll have to go off and and obviously work and find whatever I can. But, um, yeah, it's a very sad day for me. It's a beautiful place to work. The guys are really good. Uh, management's good. So, yeah, it's a very sad day. 
reach that day. And what, what sort of work do you think you'll look for? I'll probably have to look for farm work or you know, taking shelves of holes or, or something like that that, that's uh, open to anyone because like a lot of the people that are here, um, I'm not an educated person. You know, I'm, I'm a person that's learned all my skills uh, in the jobs, um, so I haven't got a trade or anything like that. So, yeah. Well, good luck to him. Redmond sawmill worker Peter White, who'll be looking for a job, and he was telling Mark Bennett all about it. 11 to 1. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. The head of Flight Centre says the decision to block Qatar Airways from increasing its number of flights in Australia doesn't make any sense. Sporting controversy, pressure increases on a Spanish football official after he kissed a female player without consent. And I'll take you to my hometown in South Australia, where aged care has become the biggest single employer in town. Those stories and more coming up this lunchtime on The World Today. We'll head out to Mushe in just a moment or two and get the results, the yarding and the prices at the sheep market today. And a wheelchair-bound working dog bringing in a mob of sheep has become an international sensation on social media. Ellie, the working dog, has been back on the farm this week after her owners made a commitment to give her the best chance at leading a normal life following a traumatic farm accident. The farm belongs to Paul Diamond and it's at Mansfield in Victoria. The day has finally come. I'm stoked. Watch this. You're going to shit yourself. All right. Here you guys. Here you guys. You ready, Ali? Yeah, so Ali Dog, she's a, an Australian Kelpie, a beautiful dog, my main, my main working dog. And unfortunately, about six months ago, she had a traumatic spinal injury where she got backed up against a... Uh, a race gate and a sheep and from there it just went downhill and she lost the use of her back legs so we went through and it's probably a credit to my partner Adelaide she said oh she's done so much for you and she's been such a great dog we've got to give her a lease of life and just give her a second chance so we went through the vet system and allowed her to heal appropriately and then we traveled all the way to Adelaide funnily enough and we found this lady there that's got a business and we we got these um wheelchair like we didn't even know there was dog wheelchairs and and we went all the way there and fitted her out and next minute she was flying around the farm again so your favorite working dog gets a new lease on life in a wheelchair when did you decide you'd try her out working sheep again well i guess it came down to these dogs they don't get paid right they get fed and they 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 become part of the family and we're in debt to them they're as good as three working people on a farm every single day so the least i could do was give her that lease and go right she's still keen her ears were perking up she was in the back of the ute and she just wanted to get out and bloody get around them but obviously she couldn't without the use of her back legs so we just uh, converted wheels for legs what i love about this paul is you you filmed it all, right? You you decided to get her back in the paddock, but we all got to watch along. Why'd you do that? I guess I just do it for my family and my missus isn't there with me every day. So I wanted to show her, look at this. And I guess the commentary 
with the video just came with the excitement of the situation. Like it was, I was actually amazed. I was blown away that she could just zoom through this paddock and actually get around the sheep and not just do it just for the shits and giggles, but to actually be a bit handy. It was weird. Oh, why over? Hopefully she doesn't hit a bloody wombat hole. It's working. It's working. Oh, I can't believe it. What was it like seeing your favourite dog get to work again after such a traumatic injury? I was blown away to a point where I was almost emotional. It's choking me up a bit now. Um, look, to be completely honest, I was almost there to give up on her, but my missus just kept me going because it was so hard for me to see this dog that would jump on the back of utes and you know run the whole farm six times a day and and then see her like this but that sort of just came back around wow she's she's going again this is unreal how did she go in the in the paddock with the sheep yeah i think like you know we're we're trying to mob up a, a mob of sheep that was spread throughout the paddock you know we're shearing at the moment and and you know i just thought i'll I'll tie up my now main dog rex and so he can't influence this situation and then let her out put her in her chair and gave her a command and she went right as far as she could until she got stuck in the rushes and that mob of sheep bunched up got together and then obviously we had a couple of obstacles doing it get over She's stuck in the rushes. She's stuck. I think she got stuck in the rushes. I'll better go help her. Take note. She gets stuck in the rushes. All right, we'll go paddocks with no rushes. She she uh, was a bit out of her element in the chair, but this was the paddock we were in. And then, you know, I swapped dogs and, you know, got him into the next paddock. And so she had an influence on that mob in that paddock on that day. And I was ecstatic. You sound like a proud father. <laughs> exactly right. It's probably yes. Yeah, so I've got two children, and um, yeah, maybe the third proudest day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, get over. She's over. She's over. After some adjustments, shorten the wheels. Let's go. There's the sheep. Let's go. You ready, Ali? Oh, ready, ready. Ali, way behind. Go behind. Go on. Go. You put this video of her on TikTok, first things first, what's the reception been like? Oh, crazy. You know, I had a couple of beers on a Friday night and as I was getting ready to pack up, I was uh, just jumped on the couch and put a couple of slides together, so to speak, and, and then woke up the next morning. This was I posted about 11 p.m. Next morning, there was five or 600,000 views and then by the 24-hour mark, it went over a million. I think now, three or four days later, it's sitting on one and a half million views. And that just blew me away. I couldn't believe the response from people all over the world, to be honest. Does she have a, a future now, uh, getting out to work every now and then on your farm? Yeah, I think she's going to go as long as she can. And look, there's going to be a point where there's gonna, something's going to happen, whether there's an infection or, you know, she, she's been gnawing on her foot a bit and, you know, because she can't feel it. She gets tingling sensations. So, I mean, look, who knows what's going to happen with this dog in the future, but we're going to go for as long as we can, as hard as we can. And when the time does come, because it is going to come, we will know that we gave her 
a new life, a new experience. She went as hard as she could for as long as she could and we did our best and that's the best we can do. Oh, he's so proud, isn't he? I feel proud. Paul Diamond from Pinaroo Farm at Mansfield in Victoria speaking to Warwick Long about Ali, the wheelchair-bound working dog who's been seen in action by millions of you right around the world. Three minutes to one, off to the markets, and just over 9,000 sheep and lambs sold this morning at Katanning. 5,822 of those were lambs. Terry Birkin's been at the sale yards. Terry, hello. How did it go today? Hi, Belinda. Numbers increased again this week by close to 1,500 head with, with some large drafts from new season and old season lambs, as well as some bigger lines of mutton yarded today. Around 1,100 new season lambs in varying condition were presented with some good trade weights on offer. Although some processes remain subdued, only bidding on the occasional pen, heavy lambs gained around $10 to $15, mainly due to improved quality. Heavy mutton bees also improved slightly again with more weight and condition, and the remaining categories held firm to last week's rates. Store suckers sold from $25 to $50, while light suckers were selling from $47 to $60, and trade weights realised $98 a head. Old season store lambs ranged from $10 to $40, while air freight weights made $30 to $55 a head. Old season trade lambs returned $52 to $79, while heavy lambs realised $93, and the best ram lambs sold to $90 a head. The few pens of merino weather hoggets available reached $80, and merino ewe hoggets were also limited in numbers and weight, making up to $49 a head to restockers, while crossbred hoggets sold to $70 a head. Bony ewes returned $17 to $35, medium ewes were selling up to $49, and heavy ewes sold to $75, while slaughter rams averaged $30, with the best reaching $44 a head. This has been Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service at Mewshay. Thank you for that, Terry. Tomorrow, heading off to Gatanning for the results of the sheep market there. A couple of minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Earlier in the hour, you heard that the electricity transmission here in Western Australia is set to get a big injection of funds, with the federal government announcing this morning that it's going to contribute up to $3 billion for new transmission lines and upgrades. In response to that, William says, uh, we've been on standalone solar for over two decades. I can assure you in that time, we get paid a lot less for the excess electricity we generate that goes into the grid and we pay more for any grid power we use. The renewable sources are being plundered cheaply and sold on at the same rate as coal electricity. We're not far off going fully off the grid. And when the government says, don't worry, we'll look after you, it's time to worry, says William. And also we heard from ALEC, the Australian Livestock Exporters Council, concerned about the footage seen on ABC TV's 7.30 last night showing, um, allegedly showing Australian sheep being sold, handled and slaughtered in violation of Australian regulations. Uh, this in from Marvin who says this SCAS system, the regulation system, that Australia operates under, is like Australia dictating to China how to use iron ore. It beggars belief, says Marvin. Good to hear from you here on the Country Hour today. On the ABC right across Western Australia, time for the latest news, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.